0: If we can find our seats, please, if you're in the lobby, come on in. Let's, uh, let's come to the word of the Lord. Before I pray, I just want you to know that we have these flyers about Casa de Esperanza. And uh, they are available on this table over here. So if you'd like to know more, this... Uh, also, I would encourage you, you can, you can look up their website, lots of information there. Also, there's some great, put it down, Jim, keep dropping it. Um, there's some great YouTube videos as well on, the, on CASA. So, the word has already been read. Um, thank you, Mariah and uh, Mikel, for reading scripture this morning. So, I just want to um, pray over our time together, and we're going to dive right in. Father, we, we want to approach your word um, as it is. It is holy. It is, it is the holy word of God, Lord, that we have in our laps this morning. Your word to us with the intended purpose of revealing yourself to us is stunning. We take it for granted. We don't think much about it, but Lord, help us to approach it as it ought to be approached. It is the holy word of God. Lord, and because it is, and because you're revealing yourself, Lord, we approach the preaching of your word this morning full of faith that you desire to to work, to move in your people, Lord, and to that end we pray, God, would would you arrest our souls this morning with the truths of your word, Lord, Where Where we need to repent, let repentance come quickly. Lord, let us not dilly-dally around with our sinfulness. Let us not um, excuse ourselves or justify or whatever it might be. But, Lord, let us run to your grace found in repentance. Lord, and specifically, I want to thank you for Psalm 51. Lord, and again, Lord, rest our souls. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark Vrogop writes these words. After our daughter's stillbirth, I struggled going to church. And I was the pastor. It's not that people treated me unkindly or rudely, rather, it seemed I wasn't on the same page. It felt as if there was no place for my pain. Sundays were filled with warm greetings and chipper small talk. Our congregational singing was upbeat and victory-oriented. Everyone seemed happy, however, my low-grade sadness and daily fight for hope created a minor key song in my soul, and it felt like I was singing a solo. Turn on the radio to Christian Radio Station in Anywhere America. And you're going to get what the station will market as the alternative on the radio dial. That Christian radio station must be, if it's anything, it must be at all times positive. It must be upbeat. It must be encouraging. It must have positive news with upbuilding quotes and laughter, lots and lots of laughter. Now, that's fine on the radio dial please don't hear me saying anything negative towards that. That's appropriate for the Christian radio station. But I would have to agree with author Mark Vrogop when he says that there's a subtle danger when we ignore the laments in the church. Now, last week's sermon seemed to have have this silencing effect across the church while Psalm 51 was being preached can be a little awkward when it gets that quiet but at the same time as I was preaching last week just want you to know I was comfortable with it and it felt like it was appropriate it's appropriate to come to church and it's appropriate for when you come that there'd be loud singing and clapping and shouting to the Lord It's appropriate when songs are sung, they're songs of victory and songs of joy. But you also need to know it's appropriate to come to church and there be sadness and grief and tears and they're not tears of joy. It's appropriate to come to church with your grief and your tears. And for us to say to the grief-filled person in the face of their pain, brother, you just need to trust God or sister, God will get the victory. While both of those statements are true, they're not always helpful. Sometimes everything is not okay, and we trample on hurting people when we toss them an oversimplified cliche to trust God. He or she, if he is genuinely or she is genuinely a follower of Christ, a Christian, knows that he or she ought to be and is trying to and is fighting to trust God in the midst of the pain. But the pain doesn't simply fade away with a nice Christian cliche. It's for that reason that we're preaching in this little mini-series, Psalms of Lament. Because sometimes laments, we don't know what to do with them. And we're trying to help us process that. Did you know one out of the three Psalms is a lament? Raw, heartfelt, real, filled with pain, filled with fear, grief and hurt, that move the reader along to bump up against Who is God in the midst of my uncertainties? The character of God is always the the last stanza, the last word in the lament. How long, O Lord? Laments invite us, laments invite hurting people out of the shadows. Laments are a cool drink of water as you're walking through the desert. Real believers in Jesus Christ, real struggles, and perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling today. I want to say to you, thanks for coming. It's appropriate you would be here. That's why we have the laments in the Bible, to help real Christians with real struggles wrestling, seeking, wanting to honor God in the midst of their pain and their suffering. Celebrating isn't wrong. We will celebrate at Trinity. But I want you to know, for those of you who are hurting this morning, lamenting isn't wrong either. Now, as we said last week, lamenting doesn't mean venting. Like the laments, the purpose isn't for um, I'm just going to get real and raw and honest with God and I'm just going to wag my finger at God. That's not the point of the lament. It's not a venting session. It's an opportunity to dig down deep and encounter the almighty God in the midst of the pain and the suffering. And that's what the psalmists always do. The point of the psalmist is never to point his finger at God to just get it all off of his chest. He writes with a purpose, and the purpose is to take his pain or his uncertainties to the very character who God is in the middle of these circumstances. And so in, in Psalm 51, David is lamenting his sin against God. And if you'll remember from last week, or if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back. I think there's some helpful things in helping you to process the whole context of the psalm, but really quickly, a a brief review that the psalm begins with this introduction before verse one. It's part of the inspired word of God, where it says, to the choir master. And what we were saying last week is when you read to the choir master, what you really are to read there is that this is going to be sung, this is going to be publicly sung. Meaning we're going to take Psalm 51, David's gross sin, and we're going to sing about that and His repentance and the Lord's mercy and forgiveness found therein. Now I don't know about you, but I would prefer we didn't write any songs about my sin. Actually, I do know about you. You don't want that either, about your sins. But that's where this psalm is going. And perhaps you have sung a song or two, modern-day hymns written to Psalms 51. We, thousands of years later, are still singing Psalm 51. So it's through the choir master, but it's also a psalm of David. We were sharing last week, that means King David. That means the most powerful man in the land, David. That means the man whose heart was after God's own heart. That man. Imagine if scripture recorded of you, that you are a man or woman after God's own heart. And then Psalm 51. But then we also talked about, it says when Nathan the prophet went to him and we provided some data about that and I want to add to that data this week. All right, and this is recorded in, First, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but basically a little bit of the story. I'm just gonna summarize what Nathan brought to David. He tells him a story and the story went like this. There were two men living in, in the same town. One, one of the men was a very rich man and the other man was a very poor man. And the very rich man had, had herds and it had uh, lots of cattle, lots of sheep, Flocks, and the poor man had one little ewe lamb. That's it. Lots of flocks, one lamb. And it records of the poor man that he raised this lamb. And it speaks of the lamb ate from his hand and he raised it with his children. And it actually records that it was like one of his own daughters. Nathan continues the story and he says, well, there's a traveler that came into town and he arrives at the rich man's house and, and the rich man wants to provide. He wants to provide hospitality to the traveler. And so he goes and rather than going from his flock and herds, he goes to the poor man's house and he demands his one lamb. He takes his lamb to provide a banquet for his traveler. At which point, David, King David says, the man deserves to die. And then it records that he says, let there be four times returned to the man that had his one lamb taken from him. At which point, Nathan says, you are the man. Speaking of his sin with Bathsheba and the taking of her husband's life, Uriah. That's what we're to hear behind the title when you're reading the title. That's the, that's the data behind it that makes the psalm, I'm going to say, come alive to our hearts. What's going on here? And then it finishes. It says, when the, Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 records, it begins with the gist. I'll just translate it, interpret it, uh, paraphrase it, sorry. We'll paraphrase it. It was the time of war. It was the season of war when kings would go out to war. That's how it begins. And then it begins to recount this king isn't going. He's sending his servants to go fight into the wars. See, this is this time of David's life where he has he's lived a long, hard, difficult life, but the days of difficulty, they're pretty well over. He's in a season of prosperity. His days of living in adversity, he's running from Saul for his very life. God, deliver me from the enemies that are around me, are the laments, right? And then running from Absalom, running for his very life. His life was full of adversity. But not here, not now, when this sin was committed, this sin was committed in his days of prosperity. And I say that to, before we really even get into, right, we're not fully diving in yet to Psalm 51, but I say that to sober us. We, I dare say every one of us in the room, we're living in the days of of prosperity, not adversity. And it was in his prosperity that he failed the most, not in his days of adversity. It was in his prosperity when he sent people to go fight his battles for him. It was his days and adversities. He was on the battlefield. It was in his days of prosperity that perhaps he relaxed his dependence on God. It was in his adversity that he needed God and he was dependent on God and he was Day by day, in need of the Lord, it was in his prosperity that you begin to lose sight. He lost sight. We begin to lose sight of how needy we are for God. Perhaps for some, it's in that midlife range. He's probably in that midlife range where, you know, he's, he's, he's worked hard. And maybe he's starting to feel, maybe he's starting to feel a little tired. Maybe he's starting to feel... Uh, It's okay to relax a little bit. At this point in his life, we wouldn't be able to say, he's finishing well. And it's sobering, church, to consider. And as we said last week, if there's anything in us that looks at Psalms 51 and starts to dismiss ourselves or distance ourselves or start to think, yeah, David, (laughs) what a mess. Anything in this psalm that's beyond you? Listen, here's a a thought I had while driving yesterday. Outside of the grace of God, there's nothing in Psalm 51 that is beyond me. There's nothing in there that's beyond you. And the moment you start to think that, yeah, I kind of need some grace to protect me from Psalm 51 is the moment you need the sobering warning of Psalm 51. There's nothing there outside of the grace of God that is beyond me or you. So it's with that that we move forward. Point number one, a heart that cries for cleansing. We're in verse verse number 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me. He's already cried out in verse one and two. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, right? Like according to your character, God, have mercy on me. It's an appropriate way to pray. According to who you are, be who you are, God. Treat me according to that. But here he adds this idea of creating me a clean heart. Oh God, and I just like the language of that. He's crying out for a created heart. Create in me a clean heart. It's more than kind of give me, give me clean. It's give me new, right? It's a created thing that he's speaking of when it comes to God's for forgiveness. I want a created one. He's praying, I want a new one. And this is pre-Christ christ This is faith in Christ pre-Christ. It's a bold cry filled with faith for what's to come. If you would, I'm not gonna put it on the screen because I want you to go there. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're gonna read a section from Ezekiel. And if you're comfortable writing in your Bibles or if you're comfortable putting a highlighter on your phone, might not wanna try that. Circle all the I's in Ezekiel 36. Every time it says the word I, put a circle, put a highlighter on that, and let's hear what the Lord is committing himself to do to unfaithful Israel in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 21, Ezekiel 36, 21. But I had concern for my holy name. So the Lord is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That is awesome will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. That you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then... You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. The Lord is sovereignly moving in Israel among his people. God is the one who provides the new heart, the create in me a clean heart. This is not for David to in some way cleanse himself. It's to place his full weight of all of his trust squarely where it belongs is on the Lord. And the same goes for us this morning. Listen, do you believe the lie of the devil that you have sinned so greatly that you are beyond the hope of forgiveness? Is there any sin that you have done that continues to be to the, the ongoing condemnation of your soul? That one sin in particular or that summation of sins in particular are the beyond my hope of forgiveness. Please hear the word of the Lord, that he is the one who creates clean hearts. And it's appropriate that that's where David goes, which is point number two. A cry that is offered to the one who is able. So, first of all, he offers a cry, but second of all, he offers his cry to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's not only... The very thing that we need is a clean heart, but it's the very person we are to run to, who is able to, who can provide the clean heart is only God. Christ can provide a clean heart for you this morning. He is able. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation? There is only one way, church, to remove guilt. There is only one way to remove the stain of sin. You can't remove guilt. You can't remove the stain of sin. You can't. I can't be moral enough. Penance isn't gonna get it done. You can't get it done. You cannot work for your forgiveness. You cannot, by trying to be a better person, somehow remove the stain of guilt. Coming to church this morning will do nothing to remove your stain of guilt this morning. It's close. It was 32, I think. <laughs> it, um, it will not remove the stain of guilt. Giving in the offering this morning will not remove the stain of guilt. Serving at the soup kitchen will not remove the stain of guilt. None of that will create in you a clean heart. Not create in me a clean heart, oh church attending. Amen. It's appropriate. He turns where... To the one place to the one person who is able to provide him the very thing in which he cries he gets it right i have sinned and ultimately that sin is against god remember verse four last week we wrestled with verse four didn't we against you and you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight are you sure david right like We're talking about that. Are we okay with that? He receives the forgiveness of God, and we're asking, are you okay with the forgiveness of God there? And all of us go, oh, yeah, sure, great, because we want forgiveness too, but we really don't think that through a whole lot beyond, oh, yeah, we want him to be forgiven. Of course, God forgives, and we tend to forget that Bathsheba had a dad. And Uriah had a mother and they probably had siblings, and they probably weren't so quick to just go, oh yeah, forgiveness, that sounds great. So real people, real struggles. And we chased that whole idea down through the grid of the gospel last week. So he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning in an ultimate sense, my sin is against God. And your sin is against God in an ultimate sin. Again, last week, sorry to keep referencing last week, but sin is sin because ultimately sin is against God. It's his holiness, not each other, that we have offended. Sin is only sin because it's against God. If it was not against God, then sin would not be sin. Sin. The first thing, the first place we need to run to then is to God. Yes, this is not to say that we don't pursue forgiveness from each other. Obviously, we do. The Bible tells us that. But first and foremost, our sin is against God, and we run to God in our sinfulness. And we seek to live with our face before God. People say, well, I... I don't really want to ask for forgiveness from him or from her because he or her hasn't asked me for forgiveness. Get our face before God. That's where we need to live. Our face before God. What is my duty before God? What is my response to the gospel before God? How do I get my face before God in the midst of all of this? And then I can respond. And enough with the silliness. Well, I will when he will or she will. What would God have you to do? When we turn to anything besides God, we're functionally being atheists. Denying God's existence. He's the one we sin against. He's the offended party. And that's why we need David. And that's why we need Psalm 51 to help us, to guide us. Point number three, it's not a complete sentence. It's not going to make sense, but it'll make sense at the end of the sermon. It says this, restores the relationship that was denied. Restored, here's what we're doing. Let me just let you in on the madness. What I'm doing this morning by each point is I'm building the prop statement. And at the end, I'll give you the prop. We'll pull it all together. So that's where we're headed. Restores the relationship that was denied. Verse 11 and 12. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Hear the cry from David for a restored relationship with his God. What does sin do? Sin separates us from God. In the garden. Really? Adam and Eve, really? We're going to hide now. Sin is just not rational, is it? What an irrational response to their sin. Let's hide in the bushes from the God who made the bushes and everything around us. It's how irrational our sin is, isn't it? Sin separates us from God. They want to get distance from God. And here, David is aware of that, what his sin has done. And so he's crying, cast me not away from your presence. Take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the the joy of my salvation. Uphold me. He realizes I deserve to be tossed aside. I deserve to be separated from God. I deserve to be removed from his presence. Listen, a right understanding of our sinfulness and his holiness is that response. I know what I deserve here. My Lord, my God, my Father, my Savior, Holy Spirit, my sinfulness deserves this, but my appeal, my cry is for the presence of the very, my very God I ought to be tossed from your presence. Well, besides, isn't that how we treat offenses? Let's create some distance between the person who offended you. Relationally, that's how we operate. Let's get some distance. And so we just just bring that to the throne... And unfortunately, sometimes we're comfortable with the distance. Or we think we got to kind of, I'm going to say, self pity party our way into repentance. It's a form of penance, it's not guilty remorse, it's just kind of a pity party that wants to keep its distance from the Lord. There's a big difference between remorse and God, please forgive me. And I know I'm guilty, and so I'm just going to keep my Bible closed and keep myself distant from the Lord. So he says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because why? I need your Holy Spirit because he's recognizing the Spirit brings conviction. Don't let his way that we can interpret this. Don't let my conscience become seared. Don't remove your spirit's presence from me. Do you do you think perhaps he might be thinking of Saul at this point? He's got a close comrade that he can look to. That he observed that take place. God, don't remove your presence from me. I hear it as a desperate plea. He's seen it before. To what end is he crying out? He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore To this end, restore to me. Sin wrecks salvation's joy. Sin sucks the joy out of the Christian life to the one who refuses to repent and continues in his or her sin. That's why gospel pardon, that's why gospel forgiveness returns us to this place of restored joy. Uphold me. Why? Because I can't uphold myself. Because I'm needy. How appropriate is it that he cries out for a restored relationship, a restored presence of God in his life? Trinity, this is us. We need a clean heart and a restored Holy Spirit presence. We don't need to be a church that just simply promotes how to be a healthy family, how to be a better dad, how to be a better mom, how to be a pure single. We don't want to simply promote how to be a better leader in the community, how to be a better neighbor. Listen carefully. That sermon is no different than the sermon that's being preached in the Mormon church this morning. It's being preached in the Buddhist temple. It's being preached at the Universalist church today. All religions preach that message. But Christianity is the only religion that preaches that message through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the gospel. Do we want to be better leaders in the community? Sure, through the gospel. So it's appropriate that he cries out for a restored relationship, restored presence of God in his life. I have sinned. God, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to do what only you can do, not what I can do. And my cry is to restore your presence in my life. Only you can do that. And I believe David is saying, I know I don't deserve it. That's the mercy of God that he's appealing to in verse 1. Hear me before we move on to point 4 once again. In our sinfulness, our desire is to create greater and greater distance from the Lord. The Bible gets closed more often. Prayer becomes more and more distant. Sin separates. We need Psalm 51. Number four, restores the purpose that was set aside. Now this is really interesting. Where David goes from here. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Well, what? That sounds a lot like evangelism. Amazing, he would go there. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That sounds a lot like what we would call around here, treasuring Christ. At different times, folks have asked, well, where do we see treasure Christ, grow in Christ, proclaim Christ in Scripture? Psalm 51, it's all here. It is all here. It's a lot of places in our Bible. So here's where he goes. He restores the purpose that was set aside in his sinfulness, in our sinfulness, the purposes for which we've been called, right? You go back to 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we read earlier that he's giving us this, this new heart and he brings it to the purpose of you've now been given the ministry of reconciliation. Here in his appeal to be restored, he's saying, Lord, I will return to speaking to sinners about you. This is amazing to me. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And then he's going to say, and then I'm going to sing to my God. Speak to sinners, sing to God. I will teach the transgressors. Appropriately, the teaching doesn't come earlier on in the psalm. It comes later in the psalm when he has been dealing with and has dealt with his sin. He doesn't teach, hear this, sinners. We don't teach because we've got it all figured out. We don't teach because sin is no more. We don't teach because we've got it all put together. He teaches and we teach because God has made him right and restored. You know, this is pretty amazing to think about. Be reminded what was David's sin and now the mercy of God that he could be restored to purpose. In some way, only in the mysteries of God. God can and does redeem the absolute mess That we make sinners come to Christ as a result of our failures and pathetic sin and horrible testimony what can God do with the mess you've made how can he redeem that David here is saying I will take the mess Let's write a song about it. Let's take it to the choir master. Let's sing about it. I'm going to speak to transgressors your ways, and sinners are going to return to you. You know, this is so helpful about this. This is, I believe, the heart of an evangelist. Or where, what sort of heart an evangelist, and we are all evangelists, what sort of heart we bring to evangelism. We don't come to evangelism looking down our nose at people. We come to evangelism, wretched man that I am. Moved by the mercy of God in my life. Realizing that if it was not for God's grace in my life, whatever sin that we might be talking about with the person on the other side of the coffee table, outside of God's grace, I'm capable of that. There's nothing Listen, when you're talking to a lost person, there should be nothing that they share with you that shocks you. The only thing shocking in the conversation is that you haven't committed that sin. And in the mystery of God, he redeems the mess that we make in our sinfulness. And he not only allows us to speak to sinners, he calls us to. He calls us to speak to sinners. Not out of our arrogance. Not out of our self-righteousness. But out of the righteousness of Christ that was not deserved. Out of the mercies of God poured out into our lives. And so God's bringing purpose to the disaster that David has created here. And he's bringing all of that pain and all of the hurts that he has created. And suddenly he's going to, he's going to Romans 8, 28 this. He's going to use this for his good. He's going to use this according to his purposes. Only the Lord can do that. Only God can make something good out of the mess of Psalm 51. So Charles Spurgeon puts it much better than I just did. He says this, The pardoned sinner's matter will be good for he has been taught in the school of experience, and his manner will be telling, for he will speak sympathetically, I'll say humbly, as one who has felt what he declares. The audience the psalmist would choose is memorable. He would instruct transgressors like himself. Others might despise them, but a fellow feeling makes us a wondrous kind. If unworthy to edify saints, he would creep in along with the sinners and humbly tell them of divine love. I would argue he is worthy to edify saints, but let's just go with the sentiment. If unworthy to edify saints, we are called to creep in along sinners and humbly tell them of divine love because God has been so merciful to you and I. So he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. That's literal. Uriah's blood is on his hands. Think about what he's saying here. He's crying out to God, God, deliver me from that guilt. He says, oh God, of my salvation. Until now, in the entire psalm, it's always been, oh God, oh God. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Now he adds this nice little addition of my salvation. Until now, only oh God. Now he adds ownership. He adds source for salvation. O God of my salvation, meaning you own my salvation. You are the source of my salvation. He knows who owns his salvation. He knows where his forgiveness comes. And the reply comes, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Yeah, that's a right response. So he's being restored to his purpose. First of all, his purpose of speaking to sinners and now singing to God found in his forgiveness. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. It's by the Lord's righteousness that mercy has been extended to him. It's not by David's mercy. It's not by your mercy. Our righteousness is void. We have no righteousness to bring to this moment. It's the righteousness of God. It's, it's, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that exacts the justice that makes the sinner sing. Why do we sing? Why do we gather? Why does that matter? Why, why not shorten the service? Why, why, why not just toss a song out there? Why, why, perhaps you're new, you might be wondering, why do they sing so loud Psalms is loud because it's filled with the mercy and forgiveness, the the awareness. Revelations is loud. Myriads and myriads of people are coming to sing loud praises to the one who is worthy, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It's loud singing, it's not indifferent singing. Praise be to God. He has extended mercy into my life. He preaches in verse number what? Uh, verse thirteen. He's preaching, and then he goes on to singing. He preaches to the sinner. He sings to God. And I'm saying to you, both of those are the appropriate response to sinners who have been saved by grace. He says, verse 15, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or you would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God. This is what the burnt, this is, this is the meaningful sacrifices of God. Is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise as we read last week and we'll hear in Isaiah soon, in a few months, not interested in your sacrifices, not interested in your burnt offerings, not interested in you trampling over the sacrifices. You just come and you, you burn up an, a sacrifice and it has little to no meaning to you. What the Lord wants is our heart a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. Let me put it in 2019. He's not interested in your church attending. He's not interested in your giving in an offering. He's not interested in your sacrifices of whatever sort that you might think these will interest the Lord. He's interested in your heart. He wants more than just a perfunctory, outward obedience to God because, oh, we just know that whatever the Bible says that, we need to be obedient to the Lord. He wants your heart first and foremost. And all those external things, well, certainly, if he has your heart, those will come. Right. Wow. I have three more points. Uh, this isn't going to work. Worship team, will you join me? <laughs> We're going to do these fast. Ver, uh, number five, this is no token religion. Rather, it's genuine change. It's everything I just shouted at you. <laughs> you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with burnt offering, meaning ritualistic sacrifices, external burnt offerings. It's not what God desires. That's not God's delight. He wants our hearts, not a religious show of things. Number, five, number six, a broken and contrite heart. This the Lord will not despise. Again, verse 17, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. Broken and contrite. This is an expression of the seriousness with which David is taking his sin. It is deep sorrow. It is anguish over his sin. It's not just kind of, oh God, forgive me. and, Oh yeah, I'm forgiven. Let's move on. It's a humbled, it's a broken, contrite heart. God, it says, will not despise this heart. What grace is that? That God would not despise this. While a man's heart is crushed, God's response is delight. David has delighted in his sin, which brought sadness upon God. Now David is saddened by his sin, which brings delight to God. God delights when sinners repent. Number seven, praise be to God. In this, the Lord will delight. So he repeats himself there in those closing verses. Sacrifices. He says 18, do good to Zion and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. This was, this was where D- David wanted to build a temple. He wanted, to build, he wanted to build walls in Zion. He wanted to build the walls of Jerusalem. So he prays, God might you still let that place where your presence live before, before a worshiping community of you David's praying this because he's concerned his sin has pulled down the walls. And he's praying to God to undo the mess that I've made and establish your temple, establish your presence among your people is what the cry is. So again, can't improve on this, Charles Spurgeon. A great sinner pardon makes a great singer. Sin has a loud voice and so should our thankfulness have. We shall not sing our own praises, if we be saved, but our theme will be the Lord, our righteousness, in whose merits we stand righteously accepted. Isn't it amazing to you that God would delight in offering forgiveness to David? He delights in this. He delights in your pursuit of him, a broken and contrite heart. We're no longer bringing sacrifices of lambs or doves for our sins to God. We accept by faith that Jesus Christ was the one and living sacrifice, completed the sacrifice of all sacrifice. He became the Lamb of God on our behalf. And what I'm telling you, what scripture is telling you this morning is when you come to him in repentance, he delights, he delights in offering you forgiveness. So here's my prop this morning a heart that cries for cleansing, a cry that is offered to the one who is able, restores the relationship that was once denied, restores the purpose that was set aside. This is no token religion. Rather, it is genuine change, a broken and contrite heart. This the Lord will not despise. Praise be to God. In this the Lord will delight. Let's stand and let's sing to our God.